You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because hyper-focus is better than no focus at all. Hello, I'm Amanda Downham. I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca. I'm Rowena Miller, and this is episode 57, Ask a Necromancer. Welcome back, listeners. We are so excited to be here for yet another exciting episode, and we are stoked to have a guest star with us today. Uh, welcome to Amanda Downham. It's great to have you on. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm Amanda Downham. I am a fantasy writer, dark, urban, middle, otherwise. I am the author of The Necromancer Chronicles, and a standalone sequel, The Poison Court, as well as a contemporary Lovecraftian fantasy, Dreams of Shreds and Tatters. But most recently, I have been writing nonfiction for The Deadlands, which is a new speculative fiction magazine that is out right now. And I am super excited to be working on this and working with the fantastic staff. If I can just plug... Absolutely. Please plug. Shamelessly. They're all about the plugging. This is a <laughs> new speculative fiction magazine, as I said. Um, we are looking for short fiction, poetry, and essays about death. All of the mysteries and vagaries of death. The first two issues are available for free right now at thedeadlands.com. Issues three and onward will be available all at once with a subscription Otherwise, they'll be doled out in bits and pieces online. And if you go to thedeadlands.com, you will find the question submission form for Ask a Necromancer. So I am also, in addition to being a writer, a licensed mortician. And if you have any questions about death, be it the physical details or the general process or American death culture and funeral rites, please submit a question. And I was so excited when Marshall brought up having you on because of the fact that you are not only a writer, but an expert in something that I feel like we come up against so often when we are writing and world building, which is how do you deal with death? What do you, what do you do in an esoteric kind of sense? And also like, but what do you do? Like pragmatically, what do you, what do you do? So it was just a really exciting prospect to have you on and talk about the intersection of fantasy and world building and death. And one of the reasons that I wanted to launch Ask a Necromancer, which I had originally envisioned as a Q&A at our local SFF convention before, you know, the pandemic happened and conventions stopped happening, is, <laughs> I mean, I know when I was writing books about necromancy, I was constantly Googling you know, dead bodies and this and that, and, you know, all of those search histories that make the FBI roll their eyes and sigh and drink heavily. <laughs> <laughs> and looking back now, even though I tried to research as well as I could, there are so many little details that I got completely wrong because you just don't know if you don't interact with death on a regular basis. And most people don't. 
So I am hopeful that I can provide a service to other writers because I feel like there are probably other writers out there who have weird questions that Google may not have the answers to. <laughs> and that they may prefer not to Google for reasons. Yes. This is why the private searches exist now, so that, <laughs> so that the FBI isn't tracking you now. When you... What happens when I do this to a dead body? Wait, what? <laughs> Why do why do you want to know? How, how much weight does it take to keep a dead body underwater? What? Why are you asking that? It, I swear it's research. Well, it is such a funny thing, too, because I feel like everyone who is a reader or writer and has their niche, like, has that thing that when you come across it in writing, like, you know when it's not quite right. Like, horse people, they know when it's not quite right. You're tack or your pace you've got the horse or whatever and i know for me it's it's clothing stuff and sewing stuff i'm like i i you know yes it just it sets off and as writers we we don't want to set off those bells because we we want our our readers to feel fully immersed in the words that they're reading and and not feel like they're getting dragged out of it with a detail that wasn't quite right um not to say that we don't all get details wrong sometimes because we do yeah and there are and i'm very free and I'm very forgiving of it when other writers do it, absolutely, because I know how hard it is. And you can never get everything exactly right, and especially with things like death, where, you know, there are a million different permutations, and there are things that would seem very wrong to me, but there's always that exception to the rule somewhere where, oh no, that's exactly how it really did happen. So let's talk about death. I mean, one of the first things that I thought of when we were talking about doing this episode was just, you know, how does a culture even understand death? Like, how do you even define death within a culture that you are building? I mean, is that something that has come up for both of you in your work? Writing work, not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> for me, the actual definition of death hasn't come up yet, um, which I think is because mostly I'm writing second world fantasy where you aren't dealing with those tricky medical and legal ramifications of things like brain death versus somatic death, life support, etc., cetera, et cetera. Um, Although you could be, I mean, in any second world could also have all of these issues. They just haven't come up for me specifically, but I can see. That's a really good point that in when we talk about death I think a lot of us have the image in our mind of like you know the moment in the ER on TV when they're calling it and it's like well that's that's one way to think about how you define a death but yeah if you live in a culture that doesn't have the same kind of medical definitions or practices that we do do you think of it in the same the same way or do you have other concepts maybe you have the the princess bride mostly dead <laughs> mostly dead <laughs> well also if you're building a secondary world where there is some sort of defined afterlife or some sort of defined state of undeath or where there's ghosts or something then that throws entirely different rocks into the river there where anything somebody can be dead but they're not necessarily gone and what's the what are the cultural ramifications of that i mean i'm thinking about in amanda's necromancer chronicle books i mean 
her main character summons ghosts of the recently dead to be like, so who killed you? And what's the legal, you know, what's the legal ramifications of that? Like, is, can a ghost testify at their own murder trial? <laughs> Forensic necromancy just utterly fascinates me. And that was a big drive <laughs> when I started writing the necromancer books. Also, Catherine Addison's The Witness for the Dead just recently came out, which also deals with a form of forensic necromancy, and I will plug the hell out of that because it's an amazing book. I actually caught the bug originally from Laurel K. Hamilton, so who deals with a very different style of world building than I do, but I think it is just a really interesting idea that has so many possible permutations. Well, I think it's interesting to think about the legal definition of death, too. Like we, we have, we have an understanding of a medical definition of death. We probably have sort of a pragmatic, practical understanding, but especially when you get into second world stuff, like can, can your legalities get muddy? If you have a second world in which people have some kind of magical inheritance, for example, and you have to die first, like, does this, how does the, how does that play into how you understand death to begin with? Or if you have just a natural progression of physical death you become a ghost like do you still own your property yeah that's if if you are if you exist deaths what about those if you exist as a ghost (laughs) after your body has died yes does does your culture accept that do they like yes granddad is still here he can talk he can answer all of these questions or does death become taboo in that way of we don't want ghosts here which admittedly is how i dealt with it in my books of just the taboo of Ghosts absolutely exist and everyone knows this, but they don't want them hanging around. So you have trained (laughs) necromancers to come in and say, okay, granddad, we appreciate your testimony as to who murdered you, but now you have to leave. (laughs) (laughs) If something passes on, like something magical passes on of inheritance after death, what does, what qualifies as death? And that's it. Now, now I'm thinking about that episode of Buffy where Buffy technically medically died for for 30 seconds and then therefore the slayerhood passed on to the next person even though then she was still alive so then there were two slayers and that's not how it's supposed to work but again if how do you define death and are there loopholes when especially yes when i, magic I actually involved? appreciated the technicality <laughs> of that particular plot twist <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like someone looked at the outline for that episode and said, hey, wait a minute, what if... What can we do with that? Can we play with that? And that 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 is half the fun. If, if what's dead isn't necessarily actually dead or mostly dead or whatever, then what can that mean? Especially when, when you're throwing mysticism and magic into the mix. And then one question that kind of stems from, okay, so you've figured out how your culture understands death when they call something dead. How does that understanding affect like what you do next? What, how do you think about remains? How do you think about, you know, what steps you have to take with a body? What concepts you have around that? Like, how does the understanding of what is death translate over into, so now what do we do? Especially if you have a defined afterlife where it's like, oh, actually, I kind of need that stuff to not be, say, turned to ash. So can you not? Because... That makes it really inconvenient on on the other side once if your body is destroyed before or you're yeah, ready for that part. That is a fascinating question and one which I haven't 
directly addressed yet, but it's the, does your world have a explicit afterlife? Because there are a lot of books where here are your pantheon of gods, and they are real, and they exist, and you can absolutely interact with them, and there are absolutely known things that are going to happen when a person dies. Versus the great question of, you know, this is the belief that this culture has, but is this accurate? Can you test it? For me, there's a lot of wiggle room to not say, oh, absolutely, we we certainly know exactly what happens when you die and where you go. Yeah, I think it's interesting because as like a reader, if you're reading it and the book presents to you, this is the reality, this is, here's the gods, this is what heaven looks like for these folks, you know, you have a different experience reading those kinds of passages than if it is, you know, more similar to how we exist. And this is what our culture believes. This is what we attach ourselves to, but. any, Especially in any sort of fantasy setting where not only is there an afterlife, but there is fluidity between the afterlife and, and the normal world. Like, like all the Greek mythology where it's like, we just went to the underworld to like, go get our ex-girlfriend or something and and whoops we look back when we shouldn't have but <laughs> and we're back but like but that sense of fluidity is throughout all those stories of like you can just even if you're not dead you can go there and like have a chat at least and then you know come yeah, back. I'm, I'm always fascinated by the question of resurrection to me i get too caught up in the pragmatic physical details like i'm absolutely fine if someone gets stabbed, falls over dead, and then is miraculously healed, you know, within a short period of time before decay has set in, can someone be dead, completely dead, decayed, buried, that body is just not coming back, and then have divine intervention and says, ta-da, this person is made whole and resurrected again. So just as a point of pragmatic interest... If I have a character get stabbed and I want them to be miraculously healed, what's my time window before things are just, it's not it, the mush, it's a problem? I mean, technically, oh, what what is the medical window? I want to say it's about five minutes or so that you can be clinically dead before irreversible brain damage is going to set in because you need oxygenated blood flowing to all of your parts to keep those things working. The, it's the important. brain especially. It's important. It's fine if it's like, oh, well, you lost the use of that <laughs> hand or the toes on that one foot. You know, it's it's like frostbite. It's fine. But when it comes to brain damage, that's always... <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of like, maybe give it an hour or two if you have magic, like 24 hours at the most. But there's definitely a point where you're starting to get... Tissue decay and bacterial translocation and lots of things that are just icky that I would not want to wake up with. <laughs> well, that's an interesting ethical question, right? Like, well, it took us two hours to get to the healer. And at this point, do, do we do we try to bring him back or is that just is that just wrong? It's just mean. <laughs> <at some point. laughs> that is that sort of ties into the question of can you bring people back as the living dead? You know, there's the sort of like mindless 
shambling zombie stereotype that just is, you know, reanimated corpse that just shambles around and either eats people or is under the control of a necromancer or whatnot. And then there's, is this person cogent inside a decaying body? And that certainly has ethical ramifications. And I know I've, I've seen that handled in multiple places and I'm utterly blanking on where. I'm reminded of this movie from the 80s called Dead Heat, where... The the just is the they invented this machine that can bring somebody back from the dead, but like and they're aware, but they're also like their body is still a dead body, and it's and it is actively decaying. So really, you can bring somebody back from the dead, but that body isn't going to last a whole lot longer <laughs> because because you're so you're already, on a timer, you're already falling apart. So yeah. The, the, the main character who is named Roger Mortis because <laughs> it's a silly movie <laughs> basically then has you know 48 hours to solve his own murder before he falls apart completely oh you you could last so much longer than that <laughs> well it accelerates the falling apart because uh, you know <laughs> and then there's death becomes her which is one of my favorites oh yes that's that's one who's like yes your body is immortal but but <laughs> As an embalmer, I have a great appreciation for good restorative technique. So that's that's career goals for me. So I think that is an interesting question slash segue of you've got a dead body. Who in your world handles it? That in our world, we call Amanda and she handles it. But in a fantasy world, who who do you have? Do you have a mortician's guild or something like that? Or is it an entirely different practice? Yeah, and I think that ties into, I mean, the question applies in our world as well. And mm-hmm. I mean, I've had to study the history of funeral practices a lot in school. But, you know, until fairly recently in the span of human existence... It was usually family taking care of the dead. You know, you would keep the body at home for bathing and dressing and relatives would gather for a funeral before whatever your final disposition was. And it wasn't really until, I mean, the Civil War for America is what marks the turning point of the start of the embalming process, the rise of undertaker as a profession and this idea that someone else was going to care for the body of your loved one which i mean because people were suddenly dying very far from home and the family just couldn't go collect them and take care of them and bury them so and then i mean obviously historically there have been so many different kinds of priests and funeral rites and you know death taboos and things like that. For me, the the fun world building comes when you can inject magic into the equation because there are so many possibilities already without that. So just that little extra thing of, but what if you can actually talk to the dead and they'll answer you? What if you can preserve this body more effectively? What if you can have them get up and walk home? We got to get your body home to the... Home to your family a thousand miles away, so get up! <laughs> Start moving. 
let me tell you, if I could perform actual necromancy at work, I wouldn't raise an army of the dead and try to take over the world. I would just have people sit up and put their own pants on. (laughs) It's the little things that are incredibly frustrating. Everybody has this, you know, grandiose ideas of, oh, world domination. I I will become a lich king. No. Have you tried putting pants on a dead person? It's like dressing a 200-pound toddler who just discovered passive resistance. (laughs) No, I I kind of love that idea as a sort of special kind of funereal rite where your necromancer raises the body so it can walk home. And that's like, that is the death ritual that that you do to to get them and 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 pick its own outfit you know because i've always this is and i'm sure this is something that you encounter that the family brings in the outfit that they want for their loved one and i, I like i always always wonder at funerals of people that i know like would she have picked that i don't know that she would have picked that we we ask that a lot when we're dressing people because it's it is completely up to the family and whatever the family provides, we try to accommodate as best we can. And there are definitely times where we wonder, because sometimes people will bring in a shirt and no pants. Is that because grandpa hated pants? And, and <laughs> was he just Winnie the Poohing it at home all the time? <laughs> if deceased could actually answer the question of would you have worn this is this what you wanted (laughs) that would save us so much consternation well and i feel like the question do you do you put pants on grandpa kind of raises other questions of like we have a lot of assumptions about what is the appropriate way to treat remains how do we you know, what taboos do we have? And yes, I do feel like we just have this assumption putting pants, pants, or pants are a thing. We do pants. We do pants. But, but why do we do pants? Because we have a cultural understanding of what appropriately clothed is, and we carry that over to the body of a deceased loved one, even though, pragmatically speaking, it, it may or may not matter. But that's something that we value in our culture is pants, and so pants it is and i feel like a lot of taboos that we have about how do you treat the body of the deceased come back to well what do we value in life one of the things that fascinate me both as a mortician and world building is grave goods because we do um i mean we provide cremations and we will see people whose families bring in some like notes and letters and photographs or money, you know, items that this person valued, which occasionally we have to say, no, we cannot cremate your golf clubs or there are limits. But this idea that you want to send your loved one into the afterlife with material possessions is really fascinating. It's especially interesting to me because I have had family members do that 
my my it was great uncle Eli who asked to be buried with his hand tools like his hammer and his like hand saw and screwdrivers and stuff and it's it's very funny because great uncle Eli was a god-fearing Christian who certainly didn't think he was taking those anywhere but it was a symbolic thing that great uncle Eli was you know wouldn't be anywhere worth being without his tools it was just you know who was it really for was it for him in a way was it for the family i i don't know but it was kind of a funny image of great uncle eli and his overalls with his hammer or is it just that he didn't want to share the hammers with his like have his two (laughs) sons decide who gets the hammer neither of you get the hammer it's coming with me you're you're both a couple of lunkheads and i'm (laughs) taking the hammer with me The, the thing that always gets me is when people put teddy bears with their loved ones when they die or stuffed animals. And it's just, it's just so adorable. And I, I'm always like, no, no, they have to be holding the teddy bear. This is clearly important. We can't <laughs> take that without the safe. It has to stay with them. So it, it is, it is very fascinating to me. The question of, because sometimes, you know, someone's wishes they have articulated before they died. Like, this is what matters to me. This is what I want you to do. These are the things I want with me. And then sometimes it's just the family groping, searching for, you know, comfort, symbolism, meaning something. And and what do they pick? And that is always very interesting to me. When people getting buried with stuff, like, raises another interesting question of grave robbing, which is such a huge taboo in our society, most societies. But you can imagine a society in which it's like, well, we don't believe there's any value to you know deceased people having stuff so it's just wasted down there it's wasteful not to go and get it i mean i'm I'm completely ambivalent on this in the day-to-day i mean obviously don't steal things from people because i you know (laughs) i like having a license and not being fired so this is not even a question world building for masochists does not advocate stealing anything at any time (laughs) But on a more sort of esoteric level, it's the, well, this person is dead, so clearly they don't need this thing, versus if I steal something from a dead person, are they going to be pissed off and haunt me? I mean, I have yet to be haunted by any dead person, probably because I'm not stealing from them, but I still don't know. I haven't come to terms with this. Is it worse because you're taking something from a dead person? Is it more taboo? Or is it simply a matter of pragmatism? This person does not need that 20 bucks that was in their pocket because they are dead. It's interesting, like just on a cultural level, how that seeps in and what kind of questions we have about that. And I think it also ties in deeply to like a character's motivations of do they think that taking from the dead is taboo and a terrible idea? Or is this just pragmatism? My friend is dead. He doesn't need his sword anymore. So, and I think that there's just so many cultural implications and questions like that. Well, right. It's one of those things that you line up, you have the rest of your world building working in tandem with it, right? And it's like, that'll give you some clues about what's going to be taboo for for dealing with death as well. If you don't believe in, in possessions having any personal value or personal attachment as a culture, everything belongs to the community you're probably a lot less likely to be like, well, we need to bury people with items or these items belong to this person. It's like, well, they belong to all of us. So yeah, if you want it, cool. Like in 
my world building, I have a particular culture where death is very taboo and morticians and funeral practitioners are, you know, at a remove from society because they deal with the dead. But then I feel there's also times where people have to make pragmatic exceptions. Like you have soldiers who go out and fight and die and kill people and you can't see them all as culturally taboo or how would you have an army? So clearly there have to be just dispensations granted. Like, well, it's okay. You can handle those dead bodies because that's your, you're a soldier and you have to do this. And then maybe go like wash your hands and say a prayer versus you're a mortician. And so you have to not touch anyone and be at a complete remove from society because you are unclean. What you were saying about like, do we give them possession? you know, leave them their possessions or the, it makes me think about how your culture values what respect is just owed to the dead in general. I was thinking about um, if you've ever seen the, the mummies of Guanajuato, which are these, they were, you know, there was a cholera epidemic in like 1830 something. And so they mass buried a lot of people. And because of just the, the alkaline nature of where they were buried, all these bodies naturally mummified. But people didn't know that until about 50 years later when some person in the city got the bright idea of like, well, there's just too many bodies buried. So we're going to charge the families a fee now that if you can't pay the fee now, we're just going to dig up your family. And then they were like, ooh, these bodies all mummified. That's kind of cool. And then that became like a tourist attraction. But just the idea is like the act, the idea that later you can be like, Ooh, we've decided you owe money again. So if you don't, then we're going to dig up your dead. Well, and, and then the weirdness of, of displaying them too. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I took my kids to a children's museum a couple of years ago and they happened to have a couple of mummies in this museum. And as I'm standing there with my kid, like looking at the mummy on just like, you know, this is actually a little weird. There's something just a touch weird about the fact that like in most other circumstances, if you had a deceased individual and put them on display, that would be weird and we wouldn't <laughs> do that. But you wrap it in linen cloth and you put it in a sarcophagus for, you know, several centuries at minimum. It's okay. It's an artifact and we can look at it in a museum with our kid and it's something close to normal. Yeah, that is that is a very interesting thing, which for me personally, I do not have any taboos about exhibiting the dead. And if I die and someone wants to put me on display, fantastic. Go nuts. But I also completely understand the problems people have with this idea of, well, this was a culture that wasn't ours, so it's okay to display their dead because that makes it anthropology, but we would never ever do that to our own dead people. So, I, I mean, I understand when people get very unhappy about the, oh, we found this ancient burial site and we're going to dig everyone up and put them in a museum. And all of the living descendants of that culture are saying, what What the hell? What are you doing? I would prefer you didn't. Thanks. So it's, it's the, I have zero issues with unearthing dead people because you want to learn from them. However, I absolutely respect the fact that 
we do this on a very biased kind of way, which is pretty much the like, oh, you weren't white? Well, then it's okay, because this makes it anthropology. There's so much baggage in the real world that we deal with when we're talking about death and culture and death rituals and how we interact with them. And it's a lot if you're trying to distill that into a second world, but it is something that I try to think about of like how, what, what are the, the cultural clashes in death rites and dealing with history and things like that. But it's such a huge point of potential tension, right? Because most cultures take death and what we do with the deceased very seriously. And so a slight discrepancy in how, what is considered respectful can be a, a pretty big deal, whereas which fork that you use at dinner is less likely to cause that level of tension. So one thing that I am, am curious about, since we have you here, Amanda, what are some of the things that people get wrong when they're writing about death and writing about bodies? A highlight reel, if you will, <laughs> of corrections. <laughs> I will say a lot of my quibbles fall more toward visual media just because those are you, you have this image of a thing and it's much easier to say that's wrong than a description but oh my goodness you you do not just gently close someone's eyes when they are dead that is that is a whole process every single time i see that or read about it i now say oh no no you did not also people mostly do not look like they were sleeping it, again, there are so many permutations and absolutely it can happen and there is an exception to every rule. But generally speaking, it is really obvious when someone is dead. Mostly because mouths and eyes are open. There is a phrase, the agonal period, which is talking about like, the final stages of death. And that is the same root as agony, which I believe is struggle. Someone fact check me on that. But it is this, there is this look of intense struggle. Again, I am only there after the fact, not during that process. But it is very obvious with many dead people. And, and we, we apply our own metaphors after the fact of like the struggle, you know, you were fighting off death. And I don't know how one actually feels in that moment. But there are definite physical signs, which I think people don't see because we have such a limited interaction with death in our culture, and it is so taboo. And generally speaking, I think while some people may be with a loved one at their deathbed, it is more often that our final image of someone is at a funeral in the casket when that body has been bathed and dressed and we have set their features trying to make them look peaceful peaceful natural are words we use because you're never going to make them look alive they're not going to look like they're sleeping but we want them to look at peace but that is definitely something that happens with the care of a mortician normally that's not how people look and every time I watch a movie or a TV show now where it's like, oh, we found a dead body. Like, that is just the actor lying there with their eyes closed. And that's <laughs> not quite the same thing. 
Death is messy. And again, not all of the time. It can be perfectly neat, but dead bodies tend to purge fluids from various orifices. And it's, this is, you know, again, depending on what the writer wants to accomplish in any given scene, they can either go for those gross visceral details that make it real, or they can sort of elide them and have this more peaceful scene. But, you know, that it's a thing that happens. Death is not neat most of the time. I think there's this very romantic idea of, you know, Lucy Westenra pale in her casket, <laughs> which, I mean, that's, that's my goal when I die. That's absolutely what I want. But usually it's just messier somehow. We tend to gloss over those things, especially if we're not writing Grimdark, where we want all the viscera in all the fluids in all of its forms. Which No, there's, there's definitely, and I prefer not to go over the top grotesque with all of these things, <laughs> but I do, I mean, I've encountered books where it's just like, oh, and then we're just going to take all of this dead person's clothes. I'm like, just so you know, you might not want to do that. You certainly don't want to just put those on right away. I'm going to take them directly to the dry cleaner. <laughs> yes, please, please wash those pants first before you put them on. The kill the guards and steal their uniforms is probably not the thing you want to do. <laughs> you know, and sometimes you'll be fine. It's just, it's kind of 50-50. It may not be a good idea. It takes your chances. There's also, I mean, just the, the physical reality of death has so many variations. I mean, you can have a person who is completely floppy, or you can have someone where rigor has set in very quickly and stays for a while. And I have lost arm wrestling matches with corpses. <laughs> there are times where just, no, they are stronger than I am, and it is not going to happen. <laughs> Well, I feel like that's one of those things that, I, I mean, I have not looked into this very much, but my cultural understanding is one of, like, and at this many hours, rigor sets in, and at this many hours, and so it's not quite as neat and tidy as what you are illuminating for us yes. as having a set schedule that dead bodies all politely follow for us. Yes, I, I have definitely Googled, you know, when does rigor set in? When does rigor leave? And, and they'll give you, you know, a sort of, this is generally, it absolutely varies. It's, it's all kinds of intrinsic and extrinsic factors when someone dies. Sometimes it comes and goes very quickly. Sometimes it lasts for a very long time. Sometimes you are literally wrestling with this person, trying to get them to just, please, please just cross your arms neatly. Please just, you know, <laughs> turn your head just a little bit. You know, please put your leg down. Stop kicking me. <laughs> The number of times that I have been slapped by a dead person is definitely in the double digits. And this is without necromancy. Yes. <laughs> Presumably, if I had necromancy, I could get them to behave a little bit more. <laughs> or, like, would they be fighting the rigor, too? Like, is this, is this a consideration for the careful necromancer? Like, do you have windows where it's like, oh, no, now they're all stiff and bonking into things and me and it's just this is a problem this is the more i learn and the more i interact with dead bodies the more questions i have of how would this work like i i'm constantly now wondering 
if there was a zombie outbreak, does embalming affect zombification? You know, if, if your tissues have been chemically set, can you still get up and shamble around? Is that the difference between slow zombies and fast zombies? I mean, that's a good question, right? Open their eyes but can't move because all their everything's been been chemically set. So there's no there's nothing that they can do because their bodies won't respond. That's that's creepy. That's <laughs> that's extra terrible. I've woken up in my dead body and also I can't move. I really want someone to make a zombie film for the very, very niche market of professional morticians just to have all of the ridiculous details that no one would ever think to do. Like, although it pains me personally, we frequently have to cut clothing when we're dressing people. Sometimes it's because, you know, the family brought in someone's wedding dress that they wore 30 years ago that they are no longer of a size to wear. And sometimes it's just the practicality of putting clothes on a person who can't sit up and help you. It's easier to just cut the bag open and just yes. drape it over them. <laughs> yes, it, it hurts me. It hurts me in my soul every time I have to do it. But yes, it happens frequently. Or these ridiculous quirks. I know people who insist that you should sew someone's shirt to their socks when you're dressing them because it, it creates a smooth line. Oh, like old school short stays. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Exactly like sock garter, but even more so. And <laughs> again, it's a little much for me, but some people swear by it. And I want to see that zombie shambling around. Does <laughs> <laughs> so anyone have some scissors? Just some scissors, please. <laughs> they just keep falling over because they're it's shirts. Just... It's, there's, there's, there's a zombie who is not wearing any pants at all. And there's a zombie who's... <laughs> jacket has been completely cut down the back and there's someone whose shirt is sewed to his socks and it's like and they're all trying to eat your brains maybe i don't know i know i have seen at least one where like one of the bodies like their suit was just open in the back that makes me happy i'm glad that's out there i forget which one which one it was but i know i did see that because like the main character saw this guy was like oh there's somebody else walking through the funeral and then it shows from behind and that it's just he's just bare-assed from behind because his, his suit is cut open from the back and so you're like oh that's a problem that's that's not a normal thing i i will say though that if someone has been autopsied they are not going to come back as a zombie by our traditional definition because that brain has been removed so i'm just throwing <laughs> so that out there else. for writers just that's your free tidbit <laughs> <laughs> so autopsies typically remove the brain that's good to know that, that, that is actually a very good good piece of information. You, you will occasionally have an autopsy that is only thoracic and not cranial, but mostly I see the whole shebang. So yes, that, that brain's gone. Though if you have a, a magically induced zombie rather than a traditional zombie story where it's like a virus or something, then maybe, maybe that can work. Yes, I, I imagine if you are magically reanimating a corpse, then it doesn't matter. I mean, unless it does. I have never magically reanimated a corpse, so... Well, I would think the ones that <laughs> still have knows. at least brains in there are going to be a different kind of reanimated zombie okay, than yeah. the ones with no brain in there. Like that's I just... mean, that... Egyptian mummies. Yeah. I, I love mm -hmm. the mummy franchise in general and, and that idea, but it's... That brain's gone. 
they took it out and they didn't save it. They did not neatly put that in a canopic jar. It's gone. It's not important, so, like a, you know, lung. So just get rid of it. Which, if I could bring back a trend of canopic jars for autopsies, <laughs> that would be beautiful because dealing with a bag of viscera is no fun. <laughs> and, and if if the medical examiner At would least... neatly sort that out and put them all in tidy little jars for us, it would be fantastic. At least Tupperware, right? <laughs> like, come on. Yeah, I, I am very interested in the idea of a second world magical autopsy because, you know, I, I don't get to watch autopsies happen, unfortunately. I would love to. And maybe someday the medical examiner will let me just hang out. Probably not. But if you're performing a magical autopsy, like, what are you doing? What are you looking for? What organs are most important to you and things like that? So that's, I've, I've always sort of elated that where I'm like, oh yes, this person had an autopsy and we learned this and that and all of these things, but I've never really dealt with the nitty gritty of what did that look like? And what did the body look like afterwards? What is the acceptable care of how you put the body back together after doing that? If, if that is a thing you do, or do you just raise it and then have it do work around the, around the lab? Because then, you know because <laughs> you're not going to be wasteful look you did the autopsy you determined cause of death so now you might as well just animate the body and have it sweep up to tidy up a bit <laughs> absolutely yes if i could you know politely ask people would, would you mind sitting would you mind just sweeping that back hall for me could you just fold some sheets that'd be great <laughs> well, i think that, I, that would be i mean a really fun element of the ethics of your world, right? Like, if if there are reasons to reanimate corpses, like, what is the legal and social ramification for using reanimated corpses for things that are not part of the deal? Yes, there are so many ethical questions there. And, I mean, I think a lot of it ties into have you, have you reanimated a mindless corpse or have you brought someone back? with personality attack? Are they aware? Because if they're aware, having them provide unpaid labor seems very unethical. And if you've brought back a shambling husk, then I'm sure there are also questions. Maybe questions of access more than anything, right? Like, you know, it's really not fair that Susan can reanimate corpses, so she doesn't have to do extra work. We're going to harness that and monetize it. And, and then, then you get lost. The My husband signed a do not reanimate. So <laughs> <laughs> I think the intersection of death and capitalism is a huge issue. And I, I have an entire essay about this that I'm going to publish at some point. The, the nobody actually asked the necromancer about this, but she's going to tell you anyway. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, in our society, that's the thing that we deal with all the time is, you know, why do funerals cost so much? How do we afford this? How can we provide the best possible care for our loved one with limited resources? I mean, I think this sort of, this question is much broader than just modern society. You have a lot of historical examples of conspicuous consumption in the afterlife. And, you know, how, how does that play out? Does it matter how many grave goods you could send your loved one off with, you know, did you murder 
a few concubines and put them in the pyre too, you know, does this actually matter in the afterlife? How do, how do you justify these actions to the living if you don't know that they actually make a difference to the dead? I mean, although I would say, what if you do know that they make a difference to the dead? I mean, I think that's a, a huge thing in world building because for us, presumably, and again, if, if someone has actual experience contacting the afterlife, good for them. But in general, I feel like we, the living, make assumptions about what we should do for the dead based on, you know, our values. But we don't know. We don't know that these graved goods are with them in the afterlife. We don't know that it matters how we treated their body. But what if you did know? I mean, what if you had some kind of evidence that, yes, Grandpa is in Valhalla now, or wherever dead warriors go, and he has his sword and all of these things, and also those servants that you murdered are there with him now. I mean, that, to me, makes it even worse. The question of, do we do these things for our dead relatives, even though we find these actions distasteful, but we know that it has some sort of effect. I mean, the last thing we would want is for Grandpa to be there without his servants. I mean, then <laughs> then his afterlife would just be so inconvenient. I mean, at what point do you just say, no, I'm cutting you off. We've done enough. You're on your own now. Well, then the fact that that's the afterlife for the servants, too. It's kind of like, not only did we murder you, but no upward mobility for you. I'm just now imagining like a seance where it's like, can you send a chef? Because I, I don't have one here. <laughs> Turns out I you would, need one. <laughs> I would like to see that revolution in the underworld where all of those murdered concubines and servants are finally like, you know, no, we've had enough. We are not dealing with your bullshit anymore. We are taking over. Oh, wow. I like that. I like that a lot. I need that to exist. <laughs> yeah, first story idea. Someone write it. So we are probably coming up on our time so when we have a guest on we like to ask our guests to give us a little piece of world building a little piece of trivia for the world that we are building together um on the show that we can have as a souvenir from our time together and it can be related to what we did or it can be totally off off topic what would you like to give us amanda i think that what this world needs is a funeral cult. Okay. So these are priests who care for the dead. And sometimes this is just simply overseeing rituals, bathing and dressing, performing final disposition, which is burial, entombment, cremation, etc., depending on what is appropriate for your region or your culture. But they also sometimes practice ritual cannibalism because... Eating pieces of the deceased gives them limited access to a dead person's memories. So the practitioners can be used as arbiters in questionable or suspicious deaths, which presumably families would prefer this to be a very last resort. You know, let's not just eat grandpa right out of the gate. Try a few <laughs> other things first. So the big question here for me is, do prions exist in this world? And are these priests in danger of contracting a fatal neurodegenerative disorder if they practice forensic cannibalism? Ooh, I feel like I feel like we'd have to 
write a few of these stories to find <laughs> out. <laughs> I do. I do love that idea of like every once in a while, a priest like right after he does the ritual, just goes mad and then dies, and they're like, "Whoops, that was one of the bad ones." Oops. Well, and and <laughs> and how would you understand it? Right? Would you understand it as you've contracted a illness from doing this, or would you un- understand it as, oh, he? performed too many of these rituals and that is what happens you go mad over time and what what can we do it is part of what we take on as as part of this cult it's just accepted that there's that risk every time and yeah someday it's gonna be your day and that's okay because (laughs) because we are already like priests of death so we accept this so here's a, a fun trivial fact i took the 23andme genetic testing and they can give you, you know, this entire giant file of here are all of your genetic markers and risk factors for various conditions and yada yada. Apparently, I am prion resistant, which they specifically say you can eat brains. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have this on your resume somewhere? Because <laughs> I am just I'm just saving this. <laughs> I just want to let people know that if there ever is some sort of terrible zombie apocalypse, I'm sorry, but I can eat your brain. So <laughs> it's nothing personal. Although I, I have a hard time with the idea of actually eating brains because it is so much work. There, there's a lot of, you know, casing around them and it's a lot of effort to get through. And I don't see why it's worth the effort. It's harder than lobster. <laughs> apparently a lot of nutrients are lobster is something. at least delicious if too much work and too gruesome i can't i can't handle lobster it's too much the crunching Damn. and the yeah those brains better be tasty if it's all that labor yes is there like some some garlic butter how do you these are the questions that i'm sure hannibal has answered for us <laughs> <laughs> and on that friends we bid you good night and uh, sweet dreams. Thank you, Amanda, for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode will go up on September 1st, where C.L. Polk is joining us to talk about the challenges of building what the state and government is supposed to be versus what it actually ends up being. I'd also like to remind you that we are a finalist for the Hugo Award for Best Fan Cast. If you are eligible to vote for the Hugos, we would love your consideration. And if you want to learn how you can be eligible, visit discon3.org. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts. (laughs) 